This is hell. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. In January 2020, the coronavirus, which has plagued us ever since, was first detected in the United States with some cases showing up in the state of Washington. Throughout February of last year, the world watched as it spread everywhere. By March, the virus had arrived here in Chicago. While the media, government agencies, and the Trump administration were saying the death toll would be somewhere around 60 or 70,000, our guest today was telling us that the deaths would likely reach a half a million, if not a million and a half. Today's guest would return two more times in 2020 to keep us updated on the pandemic. And while President Trump and his supporters were playing down the virus, we were very, very fortunate to have a guest who was giving us a far more realistic view of what was actually taking place. This morning, we will get an update on what is really happening with the pandemic when we have the return of evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Rob is the author of the 2016 book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Infectious Disease, Agribusiness, and the Nature of Science. He's also co-author of Neoliberal Ebola, Modeling Disease Emergence from Finance to Forest, and Farm and Clear-Cutting Disease Control, Capital-Led Deforestation, Public Health Austerity, and vector-borne infection. Rob has consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Rob's fourth appearance on This Is Hell, having been on shortly after the virus outbreak here in the States to discuss his must-read article, COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital on the True Origins of the Pandemic. Rob was on most recently in October to discuss his book, Dead Epidemiologist. Rob blogs at Farming Pathogens, which you can find at farmingpathogens.wordpress.com. And he also works with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. Find out more about them at arerc.wordpress.com. And you can support Rob's work by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, anything new about you? Uh, I think Rob will be mad if I texted him a picture of the bathroom sink in here and asked if this is dangerous. Oh to my us. God, that thing! Is, I'm more worried about it than COVID. At this I've point. tried to clean that thing on so many occasions, and the sediment that comes out of the faucet in there is just scary as hell. Should you feel grosser after washing your hands in a bathroom? I know exactly. There's I, uh, some weird black substance that's just the in our sink. It's really gross. It's really gross. And if you put your uh, thumb over the faucet, you can see black chump. Okay, don't do, Chuck, don't do that again. It's really, we've got enough problems over here. A quick follow-up at the end of Monday's show. I mentioned a front-page story in that morning's New York Times that caught my eye because it was about Michigan. The story comes with the headline: "Sweet cherries, bitter politics, two farm stands, and the nation's divides." Opposing views of mask requirements have rippled across a Michigan county, even influencing where people buy their fruit. And apparently, I was not the only one whose eye caught the story because listener Jeff wrote me saying, I had no idea I may have eaten fascist Michigan cherries. I don't know if a cherry can be fascist. In fact, it wasn't just me and Jeff. The article was the Times' second most read story of the day. The article describes how a massive and before unseen cultural divide has been revealed 
with the Frisk Farm Market opposing all mask rules and King's Orchard Farm Stand being very supportive of all pandemic safety protocols. The Times' outstanding investigative journalism describes the Frisk Farm owner as being, quote, sometimes called the Rush Limbaugh of Antrim County. They don't say who sometimes calls him that. They just say sometimes it happens. And I'm starting to think the whole thing is a publicity stunt for the Rush Limbaugh of Antrim County. According to an actual source, and not things that just sometimes happen, a person who lives in the area has told me, quote, King's Orchard are some good folks. At least they seem to be. Here's an article on them and climate change. Not too many farmers will talk openly about climate change, even though they're facing it in the fields, because they're on the denying side of the political spectrum. But they do. This farm does. King King's Orchard does. The one that is pro-safety protocol does. My source then sends the Good Fruit Grower article, Weather Events Make Farming Riskier and Harder Northwest Michigan Farms Struggle with Climate Change, which you can find at goodfruit.com. As for Frisk Farms owned by the Rush Limbaugh of Antrim County, my source tells me, I had a feeling the other orchard was Frisk's. He's a loyal far-right winger from way back. Lots of people up here avoid his fruit and his fruit stand. So is there a new culture war in northwestern Michigan? No, not really. The only thing new is the New York Times fell for a promotional stunt by a right-wing radio host who is following likely exploded overnight. Probably has tons more followers on Facebook and Twitter and whatever other social media platforms he used. So uh, thanks, New York Times, for giving free publicity to a far right-wing nut who even people in his county have been ignoring for a very long time. If anyone listening right now has any idea of how I can get a story planted, a non-story planted about a non-controversy, get it planted in the Times, so I can actually have a bigger following, it's some sort of proof of a culture war happening that the Times is trying to promote, please email me at chuck at thisishell.com. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, as we do every week. During this week's moment, Jeff takes us to the depths of glory. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? We got an email from John who suggests a guest, John B., I should say. But John's suggestion is a politician, kind of. John writes, hi, Chuck. I heard Dennis Kucinich on Bob Shear's show talking about his book, The Division of Light and Power and His Early Life in Cleveland. Now, I guess you have to say Dennis is a politician. Retired? Dunno. Definitely not dead like Huey. But 
What struck me about the talk on Cheers show was how Dennis talked about his motivations. Basically, he got into the city politics so he could try to make things better for his neighbors and family members, all poor. I was reminded how Huey Long was motivated to help the little man. So there's some similarity. The difference is obvious, though. If Dennis had had the same amount of political talent as Huey Long, he might be president. Or dead, too. Though if he were dead, I suppose you could ask him on the show. In any event, worth a listen, even if not worth a guest. Thanks, John. First, who knew Robert Shearer had a radio show on an actual radio station? No idea. Had no clue that was going on. Second, when you said he is not dead like Huey, I was not sure to which Huey you were referring. Huey Newton, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, or was it Huey Long, the kingfish and governor of Louisiana? So thanks for clearing that up. Finally, while we have not had a guest who is dead on the show in the past, John, now that you've thrown down the gauntlet, I will take you up on your challenge of interviewing someone who is deceased. Listeners, if you have suggestions for guests on the show who are no longer living, please send them to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, and Alex will immediately start efforting your suggestions. John, of course, is referencing a discussion we were having with listeners earlier this year and last year and the year before that, and I think every year going back to 1996, about having or not having politicians on the show. During all those discussions, we never asked if we should have former politicians on the show. So what do you think? Should we have ex-politicians on the show, or are they also excommunicado, excommunicado as well? We also got an email from George, who got a letter in the mail from Young America's Foundation that says it is written from the desk of Scott Walker, the former governor of Wisconsin. George writes, Chuck, I thought you might find this fundraiser amusing. Well, at least they wasted their money by buying my name off a mailing list. List. What a load of crap. The calendar they offer through their fundraiser features a picture of Ronald Reagan every month. With such great... I gotta get this calendar, but I don't want to give them any money. The calendar they offer through their fundraiser features a picture of Ronald Reagan every month with such great titles, or subtitles, I guess, as... President Reagan drives defeated communist Mikhail Gorbachev in Reagan's blue Jeep Scrambler. Hmm, wasn't Gorbachev still at the helm of the Soviet Union at the time of that ride? And such gems as Ronald Reagan was a leader in his profession, elected by fellow actors as president of the Screen Actors Guild seven times, testifying before Congress on communist infiltration of Hollywood. Reagan always put patriotism before professional ambition. Hmm. Didn't it happen that leftist actors in the 1950s lost their careers and Reagan went on to be governor of California and the president of the United States? Good thing I get my news from not the media. This is hell all the best, George. Yes, George, while all history is revisionist, revisionist history, because history is always being revised, that's kind of the point of studying history, some history is just completely made up. And boy, howdy, how they like to make up history about Ronald Reagan and not only Republicans. The Clintons and Obama famously praised Reagan, who got us in the mess we are in today. Finally, we also got a guest suggestion from Ivar, who writes, Hey, Chuck and Alex, I know you must be on top of this already, but I just want to make sure, see if you can get Doug Henwood back on to talk about his recent Jacobin piece, Take Me to Your Leader, 
the rot of the American ruling class. The piece has a number of issues that I know you would enjoy pursuing. Thank you for all of your hard work. Best, Evar. Doug has not been on the show since January 2018, so maybe it is time we get him back on the show, especially because the article Evar mentions includes these quotes. The more a ruling class is able to assimilate the foremost minds of the ruled class, the more stable and dangerous becomes its rule. And as detached as the stock market may appear from reality, it's actually an institution central to class formation. If you like that, then you'll love the stock market is supposed to be a way to fund corporate investment. Shareholders are providing capital to firms in need of it. In fact, the stock market does very little of that. And here's one more. For new dealers, the point of regulation wasn't to stifle capital, it was to legitimate it by making financial power seem transparent and disinterested. Again, the article Ivar mentions, Take Me to Your Leader, The Rot of the American Ruling Class by Doug Henwood is from April, and you can find it at Jacobin. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And if you do contact us, we will likely read whatever you have written here on the air. Coming up, an update on the pandemic, and we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? As well as tell you what's happening on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell approximately 16 months ago. Today's guest first appeared on This Is Hell with some very stark and harsh predictions about the pandemic. While media and government reports were still estimating the number that would be killed by the virus would stay well below 100,000, today's guest was telling us that there would be a half million minimum here to give us a better understanding of the pandemic's current state. Evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Wallace is author of dead epidemiologists on the origins of COVID-19. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here, Chuck. Support Rob's work by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. So back in March of last year, when the Trump administration and the CDC were estimating 60 or maybe 70,000 possible deaths in the United States alone from coronavirus, you were on our show while having COVID symptoms, mind you, saying that the number dead will likely be somewhere between a half and one and a half million dead in the U.S. from the virus. To you, what explains why the administration and the government were so far off in their estimations that were being repeated over and over again in the media? After all, I mean, I even knew it was going to be higher than their estimations, and that was just simply based on math. So why did they get the number of possible dead so wrong? Uh, uh I would say that's a good question, um, because in part, the United States had quite the reputation of being uh, one of the uh, countries that had the best uh, preparation for uh, against the pandemic. And, um, you know, you did mention uh, uh, Doug Henwin's notion of a rotting ruling class, and I think uh, it's an emblematic of that uh, particular situation. Um, as I've spoken about previously, the United States, it's on its far side of capital accumulation. And so uh, instead of churning uh, uh, money into capital, it's primarily organized around churning capital into money, meaning the ruling class is cashing out. And what that means is selling off the public commons. And so since the mid-70s, when the country went neoliberal, 
a lot of the public commons, including public health, had been either sold off or monetized. So that uh, you know, public health came down to your interaction uh, with your doctor, uh, and that's for those who actually had a, uh, um, access to health care. Even under Obamacare, we have uh, something like 28 million Americans without health insurance, 44 million more Americans that are underinsured. So even that notion of public health uh, inter, uh, as an intervention uh, was not going to be doing be able to do the job uh, if we were indeed invaded by a pandemic. I think we've primarily taken the notion of much in the way that we project military might around the world as a way of uh, keeping uh, uh, our homeland safe. I think that was the attitude in terms of the CDC's um, interventions around the world, uh, that while we backed a global system that helped produce the uh, uh, you know, pathogens that emerge and could be turned into a pandemic by virtue of supporting the land grabs, uh, supporting the deforestation uh, as a way of enriching our, our companies, uh, U.S.-based companies. Um, the damage that would come out of that, uh, for instance, the emergence of, of uh, Zika or the emergence of Ebola or the emergence of the uh, various uh, avian influenzas could be uh, 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 foreshortened by virtue of uh, launching a CDC team that could go to the country and contain the outbreak. Um, but in the course of doing that, we uh, left our, uh, uh, you know, a domestic situation to, to go to rot in, in a way that um, uh, by the time we instituted uh, or by the time that Trump arrived and emerged in between um, a proletariat uh, political class that is basically non-existent and a bourgeoisie, uh, bourgeois political class that had been uh, riding away. Um, then uh, you have an, uh, an incompetent in uh, uh, spearheading a, um, a government and a kind of uh, uh, set of institutions that were incapable of, of grappling with a, a, an actual disease that came to our shores. and. Um, and so, in essence, uh, this was all spun off onto the states to um, uh, to handle the situation. And um, so many of the uh, accoutrements of a working uh, public health system weren't in place. Um, we don't didn't have the means by which to track uh, the number of infections. Um, and there was also a notion of um, wishful thinking and the kind of American exceptionalism, the notion that uh, all these terrible things happen offshore, they can't happen to us. And so we have a combination of a collapse in the ability to respond as a public health system, uh, headed by a leadership uh, that is indeed a combination of uh, incompetent and greedy. In, you, in your response, you were talking about the kind of uh, implementation of our, our foreign policy, this kind of military-based foreign policy that the United States has when it comes to addressing the pandemic. Can a war footing against the pandemic be won? Can that kind of thinking, is that a, a, an appropriate way to approach a pandemic, to think of it as a war on a disease? Well, I have mixed feelings about it. On, on the one hand, you know, uh, I've been struck the past year the, the notion that if should uh, an actual other country were to invade the United States, um, you know, say China, in you know, coming in on L.A., you know, the kind of updated version of Red Dawn, that somehow the rest of the country would be disturbed enough to do something about it, right? So the other only other thing that you would imagine that would, uh, if, you know, elicit such a reaction 
in the in the into in the immediate would be the uh, arrival of pestilence because of the uh, infectious diseases have uh, been uh, the the primary source of uh, mortality uh, in human civilization since the very start, and the, the its capacity to spread fast and furiously and quietly uh, indicates the necessity for a kind of uh, full national response in a way that would uh, allow you to get ahead of it before it swept through your population. And, uh, you know, we have the uh, fortunate issue of, uh, of COVID-19 only causing about 2% uh, uh, mortality, at least at the start, in such a way that as it did uh, sweep across the country, um, you know, the, the death rate of, you know, as you mentioned, 500,000 is closing on 600,000 now, although there are estimates that, uh, in actuality, 900,000 Americans have been killed so far. Um, you know, that, that would elicit the kind of res uh, full alert that would uh, galvanize the entirety of the country to direct itself in a way that, you know, interventions necessary. Other countries didn't have that problem. I, ironically enough, other countries that don't spend uh, in anywhere near uh, the money dedicated toward uh, the military-industrial complex, as we do, uh, did, in, did indeed engage in the kind of uh, uh, institutional response that, that allowed them to quash the outbreak before it spread. Obviously, China comes to mind. It, you know, uh, messed up at the start, but flooded uh, uh, Hubei, the uh, province in which Wuhan was, with uh, 40,000 health workers, and it really put the hammer down. And you know, in, in, in an awful way, in the sense of locking people down for several months on end. But you know, uh, you know, you see the pictures of uh, you know the Wuhan raves going on in Wuhan, and there's a certain uh, uh, you know uh, wistful sense of an, another world out there beyond our uh, understanding here, as we've kind of been you know sloughed into a uh, an outbreak that's uh, coming in on 16 months, as you say, and it's um, you know the exhaustion is probably in part why uh, CDC uh, kind of uh, washed its hands of it, and, and in essence. Uh, gave up, say, you know, those who are vaccinated don't have to wear masks, which uh, also offered the green light to everybody else that they didn't need masks either. And so we find ourselves, uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, the pathogen appears to be in, in contraction at the moment, uh, but that's an open question, whether it is coming out of the kind of uh, winter spike that we were in, uh, how much of that is, is a, a, a matter of coming out of that spike, how much of it is is it because of the vaccine campaign, which is kind of doing okay in some places and doing terribly in others? Uh, the numbers don't really match up. There are some states that have uh, done very well in terms of their vaccine, but uh, still having outbreaks. Uh, Minnesota here comes to mind, although it, it is indeed the, the outbreak is in retreat. You still have uh, outbreaks further north um, in the state. Uh, and you have other states that haven't done much vaccination at all and seem to be uh, at least reporting that they, they don't have many outbreaks. So, you know, the science hasn't been done yet in terms of uh, determining to the extent to which the vaccine campaign has been successful. But uh, for whatever reason, we've decided to declare victory, uh, much as we did in Vietnam and uh, this past year in Afghanistan. Uh, it's, it's, we've decided that we're done with it. And so, uh, you know, very much uh, as <laughs> it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, reminiscent of the notion of we've binge-watched the season of pandemic, we're tired of it, and we're ready to move to a new season. 
At the very beginning of the outbreak here in the States, Dr. Anthony Fauci was telling people to not obtain N95 masks as there was a shortage. And at the time, the medical community addressing the pandemic needed to be protected. Instead, we were instructed how to make homemade masks, which is what I still use to this day. Now we're being told to take our masks off, not necessarily for public health reasons, but because not wearing masks may show those who are not vaccinated the benefits of getting vaccinated, further encouraging more to get vaccinated. So, Rob, how much are current claims by the CDC that we can take our masks off? How much are they driven by protecting personal health? And how much are they driven by politics? Well, I mean, uh, you know, here's here's where we get uh, an understanding of the difference between epidemiology and public health, because they came across a few studies that basically explain that if you are vaccinated, uh, in all likelihood, you would not spread the virus to other people. So then now you're in the business, you're not even if you're vaccinated, because you're vaccinated, you're not going to be a source of infection. So uh, that was a signal that those who were vaccinated no longer have to wear a mask because they they won't uh, in any way serve as a source. Uh, the problem is, is that um, um, the uh, that has impact on public health uh, extends beyond. You're sending signals out uh, out and beyond. Uh, you're putting all sorts of uh, governments and uh, you know. Uh, state governments, city governments, and uh, various businesses in a bind because if someone enters your uh, your business and there's no longer a mask mandate and they're not wearing a mask, there's, uh, as very well described, uh, in a variety of um, uh, publications uh, pushing back against the CDC decision, uh, there's no way by which the, uh, the business can declare or, you know, determine whether or not the person without the, the mask is vaccinated or not. Uh, as very well established restaurants and bars and such, which uh, I understand the desire to go to them. It's been exhausting year and a half. I get it. Um, but they've also been documented as um, sites for super spreading. And so, you know, the, there really is an element of it, ha it has terrible impact on the broader public health. Even as we also know, we're all exhausted from, the, from uh, these lockdowns and mass mandates. And, it, and the reason why we ha find ourselves a year and a half with the lockdowns and, and mass mandates with stay-at-home stay orders was because uh, the, uh, the U.S. public health system uh, uh, and the government overall failed to intervene in the early months of the outbreak in such a way uh, that other countries, very politically very different from each other, from China to Vietnam to New Zealand to Australia uh, to, to, uh, to Taiwan to um, Iceland, all very different, but uh, on point in terms of intervening really early. So, you know, to allow within, uh, you know, the middle of um, 2020, you have pictures coming out of New Zealand of the Kiwis going to the rugby game without masks. And it's a very different picture than we have here in the United States now, people showing up to the various basketball games without masks. It's a very different epidemiological uh, situation. Uh, in New Zealand, they don't have COVID. Here we do, and we are pretending that um, if you don't have a mask, then therefore you're vaccinated. And uh, it may very well turn out for the better. It may very well turn out uh, all fine. And I may be entirely wrong. Um, but, you know, that's the job of, a, of an epidemiologist is to uh, worry and think this through. Uh, and, 
you know, operate on what's called the precautionary principle that you uh, prepare yourself for possible dangers because of the damage that comes from making the wrong call is so terrible that you don't want to uh, end up in that position. Uh, so things are going well right now, but the, the metaphor that comes to mind is that, you, you know, you're at the Cubs game and the Chicago Cubs are leading, um, you know, they're leading the Mets in the uh, bottom of the six, six to five, right? And the Cubs decide to pull all their best players uh, off the field and stick in a bunch of, um, um, you know, uh, level A uh, minor leaguers. And, um, you know, it's an ongoing situation. And it's extraordinary. The notion of, of declaring a thing over when, uh, in fact, uh, you know, the evidence indicates that while certainly things are better at the, at the moment, uh, things are going quite nuts. Things are not all uh, clear. It's not an all clear yet. Although we were making our way in that direction. And so, uh, you know, and, and Biden had, uh, in my view, had the right uh, uh, thing in mind. He wanted to aim for July 4th. We just have to mask up to them and as a way of kind of driving down the, um, uh, you know, the viral load in the country. And you do want to try to provide some end date, especially after all the exhaustion of the year and a half. Uh, but he, he uh, you know, CDC gave them the green light to uh, pull out early. And uh, in, in, in my mind, it really isn't just merely uh, the matter of the epidemiology involved. Uh, so, you know, so the studies showing those vaccinated are unlikely to spread the uh, virus. But a lot of the states uh, have basically given the federal government the middle finger. So you have states like Texas and Georgia that ended their mask mandates, even as they also um, uh, had some of the lowest rates of vaccination in the country. And so I think the feds uh, got scared that the states uh, got a head on them. And so the federal government tried to leapfrog that by saying, OK, no mask, but we want you to vaccinate. And so uh, in essence, you know, this moment of uh, victory, as it were, was in, in essence a, a kind of uh, compensatory uh, reaction toward the fact the states were doing their own thing. And uh, I mean, it, it really uh, drew in my mind the possibility <laughs> that any country that has the word united in, in the title of the country probably has a lot of problems between the various states or provinces involved and that they're probably not united. And then you really get this uh, hammered home really well in terms of the all the mix of reactions. Part of it, it is the state's rights aspect of the of, of, uh, constitutional government, but also it's just a failure of leadership uh, starting right from the beginning. And that includes Fauci, as you mentioned. I do describe all in mis many of his mistakes in the, the book Dead Epidemiologists. Um, you know, right from early on, you mentioned uh, the notion that we didn't need mask and, and that that even then that was completely out of line. I mean, uh, masks go back deep into the history of the country, including 1918. So um, they plenty of uh, literature even then uh, indicating their their uh, use, uh, their uh, their the, uh, protective capacity. And also in, in uh, early days in March, he, uh, he co-signed a uh, commentary. I think it was in the uh, um, New England Journal of, Med um, of Medicine on, the, on commenting on a couple studies that indicated that uh, COVID-19 would probably be no worse than uh, a bad flu. So, um, you know, it's uh, it really speaks to the kind of uh, failure of our uh, public health establishment, both on technical grounds and uh, in in terms of being uh, influenced uh, uh, so badly by the um, 
uh, political tone of the country. I mean, I get it. I'm exhausted as anybody else. Um, but uh, if you don't clean up the mess here, something like this has does have the capacity to roar back. Um, so I, I think we're. It, it is a beautiful. It is good that we are in a moment that the pathogen appears to be contracting here in the United States. But it's certainly still very much in the sixth inning and a lot more uh, to come. Well, so what happens to our understanding of the pandemic when you have Fox News saying that everything that Anthony Fauci says is wrong and you have CNN and MSNBC saying that everything that Anthony Fauci says is correct? What happens to our public debate on the pandemic when it's all centered around a celebrity and being for the celebrity or against the celebrity? Well, I mean, um, you know, Michael Lewis has a new book out and he describes, uh, I mean, he has, uh, it's a particular American version of this, uh, you know, but it it is, it is a a good contribution in describing the, um, the extent to which there's a failure of what's called institutional cognition. And that is when um, an institute, you know, Cognition is the capacity you you come you provide it a various choices and you, you make a choice. It's not about consciousness. It's 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 uh, it, it has to do with the these decision making that happens at, certainly at the institutional level across the variety of institutions within the federal government, across uh, the country and state governments and and so on and so forth, uh, even into the private sector. You know how do we come to make a decision as an institution uh, to do things and. Um, I mean, that has been the utter and great failure of it all. And, uh, you know, the the question you raise uh, maybe indicates that, uh, you know, the focus on the, the kind of celebrity manifestation of these things uh, is uh, uh, an indication of the incapacity to think through um, what goes into a public health campaign. Uh, yes, uh, public health campaigns should have faces, but, um, you know, when we have um, uh, uh a person, and, and I don't. It's not just about attack, attacking Anthony Fauci, but I mean, you, you go back and you know he he you know spearheaded uh, Ronald Reagan's efforts on HIV. I mean, I think it's that says a lot about uh, uh, you know the state of of American public health. Um, and he managed to stay in for for decades. Uh, you know, maybe it speaks to his political acuity. Uh, on one hand, you you would hope that's the case that he might be able to protect the actual science going on in the face of any political interference, but. Uh, the the opposite may actually be in motion, where he has been so inculcated with the premises of empire uh, that um, it ble- uh, has bled into uh, the notions of what qualifies as uh, a scientific practice. Um, so you know, if you're if you're soft pedaling COVID early, if you're saying masks are needed because we're not prepared, rather than masks are needed because masks are helpful. Uh, it, it speaks to um, you know the the limits to which uh, public health has arrived here in the United States, and um, yeah, and, and uh, everything becomes a football. And um, so you know the the right kicked him because he you know uh, came around to in a very very uh, moderate way of of needling Trump on on certain things, and Trump was a, an utter incompetent a megalomaniac that was. In essence, uh, in part, um, responsible for a half a million American deaths. But um, you know, on the other hand, the uh, Biden administration and you know, and, and uh, the Fauci camp uh, don't necessarily represent uh, uh, the best step forward 
you know, the presumption is that the parents are back in uh, power and back in control and running things. But the uh, problem isn't merely a matter of personnel, right? This is a matter of, as we began our discussion, um, you know, where the state of the, United, of the United States is in terms of its development as an empire. And, um, you know, there's an aspect of decline about it presently um, that forgoes uh, investment in the basics of public commons and public health in such a way that even our very uh, leadership in public health, uh, in, in essence, uh, um, supports uh, the state of things uh, and the failure of investment. And um, um, if only to maintain uh, uh, their access to their jobs, because um, presently at this moment, uh, governance is uh, pivots about um, um, supporting profit, profit and, and uh, productivity. Uh, and so, you know, my, my interpretation of it is that uh, uh, Biden is doing uh, to the red states what Trump did to the blue states, right? So, you know, we got a considerable amount of reportage on how uh, Trump saw that most of the many of the outbreaks in the early uh, um, pandemic were happening in blue states. So he didn't raise much of a finger. And uh, my interpretation is on this end, um, you know, seeing that uh, many of the red states are still intransient about even the existence of COVID-19 or certainly uh, uh, intervention, uh, that now that the uh, political managerial class on the coast have been vaccinated, then he's going to declare the uh, outbreak over. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, we're down to an, a matter of individual choice, whether it's, uh, although he is trying to encourage people to, to vaccinate, you know, there is an aspect of, um, it's kind of uh, out of the state, uh, the federal government's hands at this point. And, um, you know, uh, um, and to leave it at that. And um, as long as uh, things are reopened uh, in such a way that, um, you know, uh, uh, we can get back into the business of expropriation, both here and abroad. In late May, President Biden ordered an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus pandemic, with many still believing it may have come from a lab in China. However, this past August, you wrote at your Patreon page, patreon.com slash Rob Wallace, bioscience resource projects Jonathan Latham and I compared notes over the origins of COVID-19. I left room for discussion of the putative lab origins of the outbreak, as I wrote in my book, Big Farms, with thousands of BSL-3 and BSL-4 labs built around the world since 9-11 and H5N1, the first of the new celebrity pathogens. The rarity of an accidental release of a deadly pathogen under study bends towards inevitability, but that doesn't mean any single outbreak is so determined. That's a different issue. Such a conclusion depends on the preponderance of evidence accumulating across a variety of explanations. In May, I provisionally uh, concluded the genetics of SARS-CoV-2, the COVID virus, uh, supported the field origins hypothesis. That is, I backed the notion SARS-2 emerged out of a series of recombination events across wild bats, wild food animals, industrial livestock, and the labor that tend them across Central and South China. In your estimation, does evidence still strongly suggest the field origins hypothesis? And if so, to you, what explains the traction of the China lab origin story, even within the Biden administration? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm uh, it's interesting because people cite my work uh, in support of both those hypotheses. And my take on it is that we don't have an answer at this moment. 
Um, we're only 15, uh, 15 16 uh, months out since it's uh, uh, we all got became aware of it. Um, it took about 15 years to figure out the, the, the origins and spread of SARS-1. Um, so, you know, the notion that we need answers at the immediate moment, I mean, I understand why, because uh, of, of its terrible impact and, um, you know, finding out how it originated is an important uh, thing to, to learn as, as it will, should, uh, you know, spearhead our, our response to uh, in terms of what to do. Um, now, I, I, I don't take one or the other. I, I have in my head both hypotheses, and I assign probabilities to them. So I, I am, for the most part, still very much uh, in favor of the notion that uh, COVID-19 emerged out in the field, uh, meaning you have, uh, since SARS-1 emerged, you have um, lots of work done, uh, uh, you know, field samples of, of bats across South and Central China uh, showing all sorts of SARS-like coronaviruses circulating. They're always spilling over. They spilled into wild food animals um, like the civets and the pangolins. They spill over into traditional livestock, including hog. They spill into humans. Um, some of those that have been um, identified are, are you know, human uh, coronaviruses that didn't go anywhere. Um, but the the we're getting blasted by all sorts of coronaviruses at, at a at a rate and an extent that uh, indicates that uh, we're playing something of a roulette. Um, we've had three major uh, SARS events in only uh, uh, 18 years: SARS-1, MERS in the Middle East, and SARS-2. Um, it really and uh, indicates um, the, to the extent to which. Our changes in land use and deforestation have uh, really uh, cut into the barriers that previously had separated out uh, many of these, these reservoirs from uh, humans and their livestock. And a lot of the commodity chains that are being built from uh, within the deepest forest are being extended so far as to take them out to uh, you know regional capitals in, in such a way that you know something can be deep in the forest uh, one month and then in a major city and then onto the global travel network in, in short order. None of this is a surprise. It's been happening all throughout uh, since 1980. There's been a lot of, uh, well, there's been research showing since 1980 uh, in the kind of neoliberal term that uh, the number of uh, new emergent diseases have uh, really increased. And, um, that's really taken off since the turn of the century. Uh, so it's really not a surprise that our impact on land use, not only in China, but uh, in the United States, uh, in, uh, 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 so, you know, not only in the kind of imperial centers, but also in our satellites, uh, you know, uh, extending out into to, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, into Latin America. So you have, you know, uh, uh, Zika in, in, in Brazil, you have uh, Ebola's in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, uh, some of these Ebola's were you know, hitting villages or two every, you know, few years. But uh, 2013, you have a, a, a Ebola virus, not very different genetically from the other strains spillover, uh, infect 35,000 people, kill 11,000 people. So, you know, it's, it's happening all over the place. So, you know, we really, uh, I mean, my, my money's still on the, on the field hypothesis. And I think the evolutionary genomics of the virus itself indicates that. And and contrary to the notion that Wuhan may have been the origins of the outbreak, uh, the genetics of the virus, uh, the, some of the work that I've uh, read, is, uh, indicates that in all likelihood, 
uh, SARS-2 were circulating in, in humans for a couple years. So it was, in essence, experimenting with the immune system before it made its way out uh, and spilled over in, into Wuhan. Now, that's my take on it for now, but that doesn't mean the lab leak theory isn't, isn't true, isn't possible either. I mean, uh, in, in Big Farms, Big, Big Flu, my uh, first book of essays, I also describe... Uh, you know, all the, the work in that direction of um, there's a Princeton, Princeton University report in 2013 that uh, mapped out all the new biosafety uh, labs three and four. These are the labs that are engaged in, the, in studying the most dangerous pathogens. How many thousands of these labs were built since 9-11 and uh, since the emergence of H5N1? That was the first celebrity uh, avian influenza at the turn of the century. And so labs are being built all around the world, ostensibly to uh, study the pathogens to keep them in their place. But in the course of, of building so many labs, a kind of a rare event, uh, as, as you described, uh, bends toward inevitability. Um, so big picture, there's been a lot of, um, it hasn't been just conspiracy theorists, it hasn't been just Fox News. There have been establishment scientists who have for a decade or so warned against the kind of uh, uh, studies being done, including the gain-of-function studies uh, that everyone's concerned about. Um, you know, uh, not only from Princeton University's Mark Lipsitch at Harvard University's uh, Alison Galvani at Yale. Uh, there's the Pulitzer Prize winner Lori Garrett warned about this, and so uh, you know, and of course you've had several examples of um, accidents in China, including with coronaviruses. Uh, there was a Be Beijing lab that had a couple of accidents in that direction. So. Um, it is indeed uh, very much possible. So, I mean, let, let's set aside all the junky conspiracy theorists, you know, that have to do with the war games of Wuhan or whether or not this was done on purpose. And, um, and you know, you brought up Jonathan Latham. I think his version of it is probably the one that, uh, you know, bears attention. Uh, in 2012, there were several um, guano, six guano miners in Yunnan uh, got sick um, with a disease that was uh, misdiagnosed. Um, there have been, uh, Latham's um, team have, uh, reproduced or, or uploaded a kind of a Chinese master's report that describes the, um, uh, describes the symptoms that these miners had. And, um, you know, I, I had, you know, I had COVID, so as I'm reading this in the, the translation, it, I, I feel really sense of that indeed they, they in all likely had some sort of coronavirus. It speaks in part why the Wuhan Institute for Virology had their team down there because of their expertise in coronaviruses. Uh, so those samples uh, may have made their way up to, um, up to Wuhan. And there's, uh, you know, Wuhan got up to speed as a BSL-4 lab in 2018. So now you start to see a kind of convergence of circumstantial evidence in that regard. But frankly, at this point, I think it's just too early to call. But of course, the hypotheses take on a you know, political um, uh, weight in part as they're used as a way of bludgeoning uh, the Chinese. The Chinese uh, have been very uncooperative on this part. Of course, uh, who wants to be stuck with the notion that their lab actually let uh, COVID free, even though that this is happening, these labs are being built all around the world. So, um, you know, and, 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 and this would not be the first time a, a lab escape happened. You had in 1977, uh, you had an influenza that escaped that turned pandemic. So, um, um, so in, in my, my 
conclusion about it is 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 you know as a scientific uh, conclusion, it, we are just not anywhere near there. As a political collusion, we want to avoid going to war with China. So it's like, you know, just sticking them with that is uh, uh, problematic. But the Chinese haven't been cooperative. They had the World Health Organization send a team there. Uh, but that team included a member of the uh, Echo Health Alliance who had been working with the Wuhan uh, Institute for Virology on these gain-of-function studies uh, in North Carolina up till 2015. So already that team had been compromised by virtue of having someone who was a central figure in uh, the possibility that you did have a lab leak. And so you have this uh, remarkable turn in which the World Health Organization basically uh, you know, keeps it, this report at arm's length. It, uh, in essence, rejected the report and said that the lab leak was still on the table. Now, what was going on in North Carolina? Well, they were doing these uh, gain-of-function studies uh, with Echo Health Alliance money. Uh, gain of function is you basically allow the pathogen to, uh, um, you know, you, you, it's somewhat manipulated only in the sense of that you have a, a, back, a bat backbone of the virus and you have some human receptors on it and you, you, you shoot it through a series of mice, for instance, and see what happens in terms of how it evolves. Uh, the danger, of course, is that, yes, the virus might evolve virulence or infectivity, but it also might evolve a, a means and mechanism by which to escape the lab. So that's why Obama put a moratorium on gain-of-function gain studies in this country. So that was, there was a kibosh put on it. So you know, all the evidence that I've seen indicates that they, uh, that team continue their work in Wuhan and that they move operations over there to do more of these kind of gain-of-function studies. Um, so that, that's where we are in the study, uh, in terms of the story. I don't think we have all the answers presently. I do think the lab leak is worth following up. I don't necessarily think it's the explanation of how um, COVID emerged. I'm still a proponent of the field hypothesis. I think this, the, the scope of, of uh, evolution out there that's available to a pathogen is much more uh, with tens of thousands of uh, animals and humans being affected, rather than six miners uh, in a, in a, out, of, out in the back cave. Um, but to, to you know finish this off, I will just say that um, I think the the feeding frenzy over misses the point, and that both hypotheses or both efforts to describe these hypotheses, you know, to say oh we need more biosecurity on farms. So that we can make sure that we don't have a spillover of it from these natural reservoirs into our animals, and then on the other hand, the focus on the labs. You know, why were we building these labs? It's basically both options. Both the sense of focusing on biosecurity and focusing on the lab are means of avoiding describing the economic model that's driving the emergence of all these pandemics in the first place because they're more focused on protecting capitalism and its capacity to exploit and expropriate land and labor in such a way that uh, you know all profit can be offshored in various bank accounts uh, than they are actually uh, focused on, um, uh, they're more focused on protecting that model than they are in actually stopping pathogens from emerging in the first place. Um, you know, and, and you know, biosecurity on farms, or the labs are about cleaning up the mess afterwards or trying to figure out ways by which to uh, keep it from uh, uh, spilling out but not actually uh, keeping it uh, bottled away. 
You know, look, bats and uh, coronaviruses have been in, uh, you know, this, this tussle for like, um, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. And you see the evolution of these things. There's a co-evolution going on in which, um, you know, a bad immune system, which is a very good immune system because bats are the only mammals that can fly and they have to fly to survive. So they have a top-of-line immune system. And it selects for virulence in terms of the uh, both the Ebola's and the coronaviruses that infect them because the virus has to keep up with this, this uh, Grand Prix of an immune system. And uh, so the virulence, uh, so the viruses are actually quite, are, are replicating fast in this, in, the, in this immune headwind. But when they spill over into humans, they do considerable damage because we don't have that kind of uh, immune system. Um, but, you know, so these guys have been fighting. And, and, and the way I picture of it, it's a bar fight, right? And, and when you see two guys getting to a bar fight and they got guns out or they got they broken bottles and are going after each other's necks, you know, for the most part, you kind of want to back out of the bar and let them do their thing. I mean, yes, there should be. You'd like to think you want to intervene. And maybe this is where the metaphor breaks down. But uh, out in nature, um, you know, animals and pathogens have been doing things for a long time. We don't want to interfere with that. So allow them their buffer, you know, allow protect the forest enough to uh, permit um, these pathogens to circulate in a way that they don't uh, bounce out and get on the travel network. And so you have to engage in the kind of agroecologies and uh, and uh, you know allow the indigenous groups to uh, help plan the food forests in such a way that. Um, you know, not only not only do we have a nature upon which we all are required to to subsist, but we can also uh, bottle up the most deadly of pathogens and not allow them uh, to go from uh, you know uh, south central uh, in the middle of south central China, uh, you know, to having margaritas on a beach in Miami. So uh, in short order, and um, and both the lab leak uh, and the um, the focus on, on biosecurity uh, are means by which to avoid that central issue. And you are going to be posting at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace about an article at the Minneapolis Star Tribune with the headline, Vaccine Has Virus on the Run in Minnesota Amid Optimism and Relief, Officials Concerned About Unvaccinated Populations. The story says COVID-19 is beating a retreat in Minnesota with doctors voicing more optimism than ever about the state's pandemic outlook. Vaccines are the clear driver with two-thirds of adults across the state having received at least one dose. Doctors say there's reason to think the recent case declines will continue, particularly if more people get vaccinated. Some also point to help from immunity based on previous infections, as well as warming weather that promotes outdoor gatherings where transmission is less likely. They also quote Dr. Jonathan Tempt, a, an associate dean at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, saying warming weather is helping since coronaviruses tend to spread more readily during colder months. Summer means we can be reasonably confident the worst is behind us. So, Rob, do vaccines plus summer mean we no longer need masks or social distancing? Because it's a pretty triumphant article, even though, to be fair, the article also does you know, express some caution, especially in the fall. Uh, so you should be getting your shot. So does vaccine plus summer mean it's over at least for now and we have a window of opportunity for fun until the fall? Well, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm. Well, I'm going to be clear that the notion that summer's enough is is not a good call. It certainly wasn't a good call for Donald Trump in 2020 when he made the same argument, right? 
Um, I, I, you know, we are presently in a, in a con contraction, but it depends on place to place. Um, some parts of the country aren't doing it, um, are, are still are, are having outbreaks. And uh, to know, you know, there are apps out there that can give you a sense of, uh, you know, uh, when and where you can go out and about. I, I do think that if you are vaccinated, you, you should be able to get together with friends and have a beer. I, I don't recommend going to restaurants and bars, but that's, that's it. And in some sense, uh, there's an element when the Republicans and the Democrats get together and, and converge on this, and even some leftists uh, who basically said, we're tired of this, and uh, you know people are cooped up, and the economy's in the, in the toilet, and the government is no longer gonna uh, pay for people to, to, stay, to shelter in place. Uh, that uh, you know they're they're sending everybody back out into uh, opening up, and so it's as much an ideological uh, push as it is an epidemiological one, and you see it everywhere. I mean, you know, everyone, uh, you know, from uh, uh, you know uh, you know right wing governors, uh, you know Reynolds out in o uh, Iowa, all the way to Stephen Colbert on on late night. They you know he really loves the idea of being able to go. Uh, Finally, go and, and have a cocktail and watch John Baptiste, his band leader, play jazz in a club. And so, you know, there really is a, a been a, a switcheroo. Uh, you know, the notion of eggheads like me offering uh, precautionary principles, uh, we've lost a day. And uh, 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 whether or not I think what people should do and how it should be done is kind of off the table at this at this present moment. And so uh, the experiment's going to be run. Uh, it's a natural experiment, or not so natural one, in the sense of all these kind of uh, social forces are converging in a way that basically have said that um, we're done with this pandemic, as we started, you know, started our conversation here today. And uh, people are going to go out and about, and um, you know. Uh, I, I, you know, you, you hope uh, that the vaccines would be enough. Uh, at the same time, there's evidence coming in that uh, many of the vaccines do cover many of the uh, variants that are e emerging around the world, but uh, some of the vac uh, the other side of the foot or the other, other shoe is, has not dropped in terms of describing uh, that also evidence indicates that, um, that the vaccines are becoming uh, uh, slowly decaying in the face of the new variants that are emerging around the world. And so we find ourselves in the same spot, right? You know, uh, and in the in the fact that we didn't do anything as um, you know, uh, SARS two, you know, the COVID nineteen virus emerged in China uh, at the end of twenty nineteen, we didn't do anything, and so now we're back to that same position, the sense of you know, under American exceptionalism, nothing bad's going to happen to us, um, and that uh, you know, even as you know, around the world, from Brazil to Uruguay to Argentina to India. The uh, vaccine continues to uh, spread. I mean, in 2021, many millions more people have been infected by uh, COVID-19 than in 2020, and the various strains are evolving out there in a way that uh, uh, other countries are preparing for. Even under uh, the buffoon Boris Johnson, uh, England has a, a much better genomic sequencing program. They're keeping an eye on the. India variant that's emerged there, and they make decisions about whether to lock down or not based on, on that evidence. In the United States, we're not doing that. We have basically officially declared it over based on the notion, an essentialist notion, that a vaccine is protection enough, even though it's still very much an evolving situation.
One last question for you, Rob. We've been speaking with evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. And I really want to stress the first time that uh, Rob was on our show, we talked about his article that was a monthly review online, COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital. And that is a must-read article. Everybody should check that out. And don't forget, you can support Rob's work by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. One last question for you, Rob. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. The Star Tribune article that you will be writing about at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. Uh, it ends by quoting Dr. Marilyn Petso, president of the Minnesota Medical Association, saying, we have reason to celebrate. It's a new day. If it is not a new day yet, Rob, can you tell us when it will be a good day? Because we have a reason to celebrate and not only surviving a pandemic. It's also the This Is Hell 25th anniversary party, Rob. When can right. we have a party that's completely open to the public with live bands, food and an art show up here in the gallery and at a bar downstairs? Well, legally, you're, you're allowed to do that now. So do, do what you will. I, I, you know, I'm not in a position to tell anybody what to do or not to do. I'm... Uh... I, you know, if someone would ask me as a friend, I would say, yeah, you know, if you're vaccinated and everybody, uh, you, you know, you can get together, uh, um, you know, in an apartment or outside uh, as you choose, as you choose. Um, I don't recommend going to restaurants and bars at this point, but people are doing that. Uh, people are understandably out of their mind over this. Mental health is important. Um, so uh, as, a, as, from, as a personal advice, I would say, you know, use caution depending on uh, where you are and where the state of the outbreak is, whether or not people are vaccinated. Are you able to ask people who come to this party whether or not they're vaccinated? Um, and uh, do, do they have to show their card or not? Would you do that to a friend? Would you take them on their advice? On, the, on, their, on their own word? I mean, if it's just a bunch of friends and family, that's fine. But if you have a 200, 300 people over, are you going to do that? Probably not. So, um, um, you know, ultimately, all, you know, all pathogens, uh, for the most part, either die out or, or if not, you know, uh, gravitate towards some equilibrium uh, uh, with their host populations. Um, you know, when that will happen for uh, COVID-19, I can't say. Um, you know, predictions are a terrible thing for an epidemiologist to do, considering uh, all the, the complexities involved in the in evolution of pathogens and, and how diseases spread and evolve. Um, so um, I, I would, on a personal note, just say, yeah, you can get together with people and you're legally allowed to do it. And uh, this is not a panopticon, you know, no, no one's... Uh, you know, looking in on you and checking in on you and for better and for worse. You know, the worst part is that, you know, we don't have a public health system that's active and out there and, and following up on people in the way that other countries do. Um, and, you know, it really speaks to a very American moment here in, in terms of our attitude toward it. Um, you know, I, I came across some op-ed somewhere. I can't remember exactly where along the lines of that. You know, there was a very almost uh, a rightist position that, you know, the fact that so many Americans died would send a signal to China that uh, the government's prepared to sacrifice its people. And so you better not mess with us. I mean, so there's some really wild, terrible ideas out there. But I, I at the same time, I, I appreciate and understand people's exhaustion uh, over it. 
Um, and I, I do think, though, that the notion of declaring victory here is totally premature. There's still many variants circulating out there. So enjoy your beer. Uh, you know, see it as a, 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 a celebration of surviving so far and, and uh, enjoying each other's com company. But I, I don't think it's, uh, it's a toast to victory yet. You are also going to be having an article, you're going to be posting an article about the connection between the CDC rules, the lifting of the mask requirements, and the police killing here in Chicago of Adam Toledo. Where are people going to be able to find that article? Well, all, all I'm, uh, you know, look, I, I have to say that when, um, you know, through Trump, uh, both the left and liberals were united in pushing back against uh, an incompetent megalomaniac who just killed thousands of Americans. When Biden came in, you had your typical divide between uh, left and liberals, where some liberals are going to support Biden wherever he goes. So there is a kind of uh, political uh, incoherence that's developed uh, out there, both within government and outside government. And uh, so it, it's become... Um, you know, once I realized that, uh, you know, Biden was going to do a half-assed job about things, it really threw me for a loop. So I have, haven't been posting much lately, but I've been writing and writing and working through a lot of this. So this piece is probably a, the longest piece I've written in a long time. It's, you know, maybe, you know, too long, don't read, but I, I hope you think of it as too long, do read, because all these issues are kind of discussed all together, both uh, the connections between uh, the police shootings and the reactions toward the notion that police officers, you know, have a right to have split seconds to to murder a child in a in a Chicago back alley, and and as that relates to, you know, the Anthony Fauci's of the world, the notion of uh, where does the instinct to make decisions come from, how they are invested with the uh, the rights to give life or not give life, in a way that in some ways very much reflects the the capacities that we allow police officers. So I describe all through this, um, you know, it's a long piece. Um, it's more of a meditation as well as a description of much of what we've talked about today. It should be up in the next few days and uh, I invite everyone to uh, take a look. Is it gonna be at Patreon or where are you gonna put that? Well, so far it's gonna be at Patreon and uh, that's where I'll be posted first. And uh, if anyone's actually interested in uh, publishing it in, in its totality elsewhere, then uh, I'd be open to, to hear from them. Rob, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show the four times that you've been on our show since March of 2020. I really appreciate it. Every time that you're on, I learn more and more. So I really appreciate it. Evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Wallace is author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Show your support for Rob by supporting him and going to patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. Thank you so much for being back on, Rob. It's been a pleasure, Chuck, and I, and I appreciate being here. All right, take care. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways you can support your friends here at This Is Hell. Thanks to our newest Patreon subscribers, by the way, who've gone to patreon.com slash thisishell. Haley and Jameson. Thanks, Haley and Jameson. You now have access to over 150 past podcasts with classic archived interviews that are not available anywhere else online, as well as every Friday getting a brand new monologue from me. 
and in uh, another interview, classic interview, that is not available online. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. Alex, please remind our listening audience what this week's question from Hell is and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Marco G says, the right to say, see, I told you so, when the next catastrophe arrives, which makes me a horrible person. <laughs> Kim G says, smug composting. <laughs> Bradley R. says, only eating unethically treated bourgeoisie. David Z. says, flashlight, red light, neon light. Oh, stoplight. (laughs) Parliament reference there. Uh, Nick A. says, using a goddamn blinker because we live in a society. Nick E. says, Schopenhauer's virtue of passive nihilism, and I am truly ashamed. Don't worry, Nick. None of us know what that means. (laughs) What virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Fabio L says, I'm supporting the LGBTI community vicariously by liking the new rainbow logo on my listed multinational employer's LinkedIn page. Oh, that's nice. Rayo says, since the values have been transvaluated, sloth. Definitely sloth. (laughs) Producer Alex says, eczema. (laughs) What virtue are you signaling? Finally, Terry G says, or Terry S says, this is about the Good Samaritan. Read Luke. 10, 25 through 37. This is referencing the thumbnail picture I used on that, uh, not the actual question. Okay. I have one more. Andrew S. says, donning kente cloth to kneel in front of the In This House We Believe yard sign. <laughs> oh, God. Tune in tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream at the same place, thisishell.com, as well as share it on social media. Alex, who is on tomorrow's show? Uh, tomorrow, Erica X. Eisen of Hypocrite Reader will be on to talk about her Boston Review piece, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 Years On. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin takes us to the depths of glory. Hey, you want to hear some really horrible news? <laughs> Always. <laughs> toxic rain. Are, do you enjoy toxic rain? That because is... it's been raining on you. It Here's the headline from MLive.com. It's literally raining PFAs around the Great Lakes, say researchers. Rain that fell on Ohio this spring contained a surprisingly high amount of toxic, quote-unquote, forever chemicals known as PFAs, according to raw data from a binational Great Lakes monitoring program that tracks airborne pollution. Rainwater collected in Cleveland over two weeks in April contained a combined concentration of about a thousand parts per trillion of PFAs compounds. They, that's according to scientists at the Integrated Atmospheric Deposition Network, a uh, long-term Great Lakes monitoring uh, program jointly funded by the US EPA and Canada. And here's a quote from Marta Veneer, an environmental chemist at Indiana University, speaking to reporters convened online by the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources in May. The quote is, you can actually say it's raining, PFAs, forever chemicals, toxic forever chemicals at this point. Uh, we needed the rain. <laughs> uh, that's the worst news. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Rob Wallace and Alex with my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>